You're listening to Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Here, we'll chat about all things marriage, motherhood, and modern home economics in all honesty. I'm your host, Maurice Young. Well, hi, Tolu. Thank you so much for being a guest on Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Of course. So let's start with this. Who is Tolu? (laughs) Oh, man, isn't that a question that we all have to make sure we know about the answer to? Um, Who am I? Um, I certainly have to make sure I I know the answer to that question before I can expect others to. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that uh, Tolu is a passionate, complex woman. Uh, I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a friend. Uh, Who also happens to be a board-certified urologist um, Mm -hmm. and a male infertility specialist. Um, uh, I left. I moved from Texas. uh, My family's here in Texas, and I moved um, after college. Um, went to medical school in Penn State um, in a little place called Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, <laughs> and that was that was fun. So I spent about ten years outside Texas um, for my um, medical education, um, and mm-hmm. then circled back um, to Texas in 2017 to start a male um, infertility uh, program uh, here at UT Southwestern in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a, I like to think I'm a very curious person and I'm also very competitive. Um, but I also recognize that I'm not a perfect person and it's okay not to be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have, uh, I have a brother that lives in New Jersey. Um, and, uh, I would say I, I love my career. Um, I've, I've certainly been someone that has chosen paths that are not always conventional <laughs> for, for someone like me. Um, so uh, being a urologist and a male infertility um, specialist um, is quite a unique thing <laughs> for me. So. Yes. <laughs> so what inspired you to pursue studying those areas? Oh man. So, um, you know, so as a child, I, I, I wanted to be a chemical engineer. Um, I think I've always just, um, enjoyed careers that, um, people said that I couldn't do, um, or that they were for men or some, you know, something silly Mm -hmm. like that. Um, I, after a family tragedy, I had a brother that passed away, um, from a medical error. Um, at 13, I decided that (laughs) at 13, I made the firm decision that I was going to be a doctor. (laughs) Um, and so I somehow held on to that dream. I went to college and I went through med school. Um, going into med school, I had no idea what urology is, like probably most medical students. I mean, you hear about, you know, OBGYN, emergency family medicine, but Urology is not one of those fields that are that's really out there, and so I um, I had no idea what it was. And mm-hmm. going into med school, I had an opportunity in my second year to spend a day with a urologist, and the goal was to actually learn how to do prostate exams. <laughs> um, wow! I know. 
<laughs> I know. And uh, I ended up spending the whole clinic day with him. I fell in love. You know, I, I was like, what is this specialty that is so vast? You know, in his clinic that day, I saw women, I saw men, there were, you know, young guys, older guys, young women, older women. And it was such a vast field and I, and I had no idea what it was. And so I decided to do my elective in urology um, during my surgery rotation and it solidified my love um, for the field. Um, fast forward, um, getting into residency, um, my decision to uh, go into male infertility really um, started with a patient that I saw as a second year um, a resident. He had a vasectomy um, after his first child was born because she was supposedly diagnosed with a, congenit- uh, with a genetic disease. Um, and the couple, they were very fearful that they were going to have other kids with that same genetic disease. And so mm. um, he elected to go to get a vasectomy. Um, fortunately, they found out that that was not the case. Um, and, but the problem now is he has this vasectomy <laughs> and they really right. wanted to have more children. Um, and you know, the, the pressure of, um, making sure that this couple that had this unfortunate situation of being misdiagnosed, um, you know, give them then the opportunity to have the family that they've always dreamed of and desired was so important to me. And mm there's not a lot of male infertility physicians in the country. So there's a lot of residency programs that actually don't have male infertility specialists as a part of the exposure in their residency. And so mm-hmm. my residency did not have a male infertility special fellowship trained male infertility specialist. And so, you know, I was so, um, I, I thought, you know, this is something that I want to be able to do confidently for people in the future. You know, I don't want to half-ass it. I don't want to think I can maybe do it. I can maybe help them. I want to know that I can help them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I started looking into male infertility and uh, microsurgery as a possibility um, for my fellowship and met some fantastic mentors along the way. Um, and I decided to go for it. So after residency, I packed my stuff, went to Chicago, um, spent a year in Chicago with my amazing mentor, Dr. Craig Niederberger, um, and did a one-year fellowship there before moving back home to Texas. Wow. Okay. I have so many questions. (laughs) I think where I want to start too is, can you just define what urology is? Because you mentioned not many people really know what it is. Of course, I've heard the term, but what does it mean? So urologists are the surgeons of the genital urinary tract. Um, so mm-hmm. we operate on uh, uh, organs such as the kidneys, um, the tubes that drain the kidneys that are known as the ureters, um, the bladder, the prostate. We take care of male sexual dysfunction medically and surgically. We take care of um, voiding dysfunction in men and women. Um, we take care of kidney, we're the surgeons of kidney stones. This nephrology that are the medical doctors of kidneys, but we are the surgical doctors of kidneys, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were really vast in what we do because along that whole urinary tract can, 
you know, anywhere along there can be a problem, um, whether it's kidney stones or kidney tumors or ureteral stones, ureteral tumors, you know, prostate cancer, which is a, a very common disease. Um, we take care of um, children. Um, you know, urology itself has so many fellowships under it, including um, urology, oncology. Um, we have endourology, which is basically the, you can do a fellowship in management of stone disease. Um, we have minimally invasive urology, which is uh, using robotics and laparoscopy to um, do surgeries. Um, we have pediatric urology. We have female and pelvic reconstruction urology. We have reconstructive urology in men. Um, and then male infertility as well. Um, so it's such a vast field and, you know, it's so, it's so, it's crazy how um, hidden we are because it's such yeah. an amazing field. And, and I wish I could pull everybody into the umbrella of urology and we're trying, but um, uh, it's, it's really one of those unfortunate things that I think a lot of medical students also don't get exposed to because it's not really incorporated as in a structured form in their, in their rotations. It's one of those things where you kind of have to know about it and then you kind of, you select it as a rotation that you do in your third year before you get an exposure to it, which, you know, can be a little bit of a struggle sometimes to, you know, get more people um, access to it and know what it is and what we do. So. I can imagine that. So why do you think that the field is, so hidden in plain sight? Um, I, I think, I, I think part of it, honestly, is, is, you know, what we do is so, is, it's really specialized, to be fair. Um, mm-hmm. um, and then I think a lot of people in general don't really know a lot of subspecialties, right? I'm talking about the general population now. They don't really know a lot of the subspecialties in medicine. You know, they know like OBGYNs and family medicine doctors and ER doctors, but, you know, some Mm -hmm. of the subspecialties are not as well known. I also think because in a way we're considered the quote unquote OBGYNs of men, Um, a lot of men don't really, you know, (laughs) men are not the greatest patients sometimes, as we know. Um, They don't typically seek care unless there's something wrong. Um, and so we're not, you know, we're not considered the famous, <laughs> famous physicians, if you, if you can say that, um, unless, until they need us, you know, until, mm-hmm. until something really happens and then the primary care physician refers you to a urologist. And then as far as the, in the medical world is, is concerned, at least for med students coming in, I think it, it's just because one, they don't know it as lay people, you know, being out there in the world. And then when mm-hmm. they come into medical school, their exposure to it is really minimal. And unless they actually know to request it as a rotation in third year, which is hard to do, um, then, you know, they can get some exposure to it. So I think it's so it's multifaceted in a way. Um, but, you know, we try to increase our exposure to med students. You know, we do lecture, especially at our institution. Um, at UT Southwestern, we do lectures in the second year. Um, for the med students, so they have an idea what urology is, and then if they're interested in doing research with us, we pull them in to do some research with us, and so we were definitely trying to increase the exposure to it, so hopefully drum up some interest, um, and certainly pull more women into the field, which would be fantastic. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned something that I find pretty curious. So you said men don't necessarily make for the best patients, but they'll come running when they when they need you. So <laughs> what are some of the reasons that a man might come to you for help? So um, it varies in a general urology practice. Um, in my specific practice of male infertility, um, they're kind of usually dragged there either by their wives or, you know, get referred there by a, a family medicine physician or an OBGYN or a reproductive endocrinologist um, or sometimes oncologist, honestly. Um, because of some uh, a semen analysis that was done that reveals abnormal sperm um, levels or sperm uh, motility issues, um, and so they end up with me. Sometimes I also see men for other men's health issues, including low testosterone, and when men are having low libido, low energy, difficulty concentrating, things like that that can be symptoms of low testosterone um, I also end up seeing them to discuss um, some of the, the ways to manage that. Um, in younger men, the ways to manage that without compromising their fertility. And in older men that are not interested in conceiving anymore, just ways to manage that and give them a good quality of life. Um, in general mm-hmm. urology, we see men for other issues like avoiding, you know, this, um, avoiding issues um, and large prostate, you know, prostate cancer, things like that are things that we also see men for in the general urology world. Mm, good to know. And so when you're focusing on the fertility side of things and you have a younger man who's coming in and concerned about, you know, maybe low testosterone, but still wants to conceive, can you walk me through a little bit of what your process is in helping to advise him along his path versus an older man who's maybe not interested in conceiving? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I consider my role um, as a, a urologist and a male fertility specialist is to educate and counsel the patients and then allow them to make a choice that's best for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I see younger men that um, think they don't want to have children um, and think and want me to give them testosterone injections or testosterone patch or whatever else um, is available as the method um, of testosterone. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I usually highlight to them is um, the effects of testosterone on fertility in men that unfortunately is still not widely known. You know, sadly, even in some urologists, actually. Um, I've seen a number of patients that are in their 30s that um, a primary care physician or somebody or a testosterone clinic put them on testosterone because of symptoms of low testosterone, low T as they like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they show up to me in their, when they got married and now trying to have kids and aren't able to do so. And typically their semen analysis will show that they have no sperm. And the way that happens is when you inject testosterone into your body, your brain detects a good amount of testosterone in the body. So it shuts down the production of two key hormones um, from your brain, the pituitary gland in your brain. Um, those two hormones are called LH and FSH. Um, the LH is a hormone that stimulates the production of testosterone in the testicle, and FSH is a hormone that stimulates the production of sperm. 
when you shut down the production of LH and FSH, you then stop the intratesticular production of testosterone and you consequently stop the production of sperm. And so they don't realize it that when you inject testosterone into your body um, and sometimes steroids, other steroids that bodybuilders use, Mm-hmm. Um, it'll actually cause infertility because you, you take away the brain's ability, to, the, the, the brain doesn't make that FSH and LH anymore. And when you check those labs in those patients, most of the time, it's basically undetectable. Um, and so they, they, you know, it's always distressing for them <laughs> to hear this. Um, but you know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. Um, it's, it's fixable. It just, may take a little bit of a journey, you know, recovery of your um, sperm production can uh, last uh, anywhere from, you know, a few months to a year to 18 months for, for you mm-hmm. to recover sperm back. Um, and so it can be, it can be a frustrating experience for some of those men. Um, and that's why I, I highlight the importance of um, people or physicians that are prescribing this medicines communicate the 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 effects of those medicines before they prescribe it. So in a patient like that that's young, if they want to increase their testosterone, there's other ways of doing it safely while not compromising their fertility. Um, there's medicines like clomiphene citrate, which is actually a medicine that's FDA approved for women, um, but it's been well studied and well um, uh, and used widely in men um because what it does is actually allows your brain to increase the production of those same hormones lh and fsh which then translate into an increased production of testosterone and possibly even sperm um Mm. in the testicles um there are other medicines that you could give you could give um things like hcg injections um, which is a little bit more expensive um, but it's still a viable option it basically um, hcg is an analog of lh that same hormone. So when you inject it, it goes to the testicle directly to stimulate the testicle to make more testosterone. So those are ways of kind of making your own body make its own testosterone without compromising the hormones that allow you to make sperm. So Mm. in my younger patients, those are some of the medicines and there's others, but those are some of the key medicines that I would use to help them um, improve their testosterone, but maintaining their fertility. Um, in my older patients, I have the same conversation with them because believe it or not, as a fertility specialist, I see 50 something year old men, 60 something year old men that want to have kids. Wow. <laughs> I mean, the magic never stops. And so, and so, you know, I, I am very, I'm very, um, conscious about having those same conversations with all men in my practice right? because I see all ages trying to conceive. Um, mm. And most of the time, if they're really not trying to conceive or they've had a vasectomy and they know for sure they're not trying to conceive and they just really want testosterone, then I offer them the options of either injectable testosterone or um, they can do testosterone gel or they can do something called testopel, which is basically testosterone pellets that you put under in like their subcutaneous tissue in their, in their buttock area and it releases testosterone for a few months and it stays there and then it dissolves over time. So there's so many options um, for men when it, comes to, when it comes to management of testosterone. You know, the key though that I tell most men is to, you know, make sure that when they get this, that they're, that they're careful with, 
where they're getting it and making mm-hmm. sure that they're staying in safe um, ranges of testosterone. Um, mm-hmm. Testosterone doesn't come without complications. You know, they're certainly when I, when I have my patients in testosterone, I'm monitoring their blood count because it can, it can increase the blood count and there's a concern about, you know, causing strokes and um, you have to monitor their PSA, which is basically the prostate marker to measure mm-hmm. the health of their prostate. And so um, I have, I always make sure I'm monitoring my patients and I encourage them that wherever they're, you know, if they decide to get testosterone from somewhere else, that they make sure that they're being safe, which is, which is the key. Yeah. Thank you so much for walking me and the listeners through that. That was really helpful. And I feel like I learned a lot just in the few minutes of you sharing that. (laughs) I'm also curious too, because I know that low testosterone is, it almost seems as if men feel shameful about that. Can you talk a little bit about the emotional state that you tend to find your clients in and how you're able to help them have honest conversations about the problem at hand that then leads to a form of treatment? Yeah. Yeah, I like to jokingly tell my friends that I'm a, I'm a therapist slash urologist slash male infertility <laughs> specialist because I think, I think, most of, I think men, um, are, uh, they're, men are very interesting in that they, they sometimes manifest stress um, and things that maybe cause them anxiety or bother them in sometimes slightly different way than women. You know, women sometimes can be more vocal about how they're feeling. Um, women, maybe not always in the doctor's office, because we still encourage women to like speak up in a, in a physician's office, to be fair. Right. But I think men tend to shrug things off and they don't want to be a bother or they, or they think, uh, you know what, it's just me, I'll deal with it. Um, and so when they finally actually let it out, (laughs) it's like, it's like very, um, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I really, I I have a lot of passion for, for making sure that they're okay. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I like to tell my patients is number one thing you need to know is this is not any different from being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, from being diagnosed with anything else on our, in the medical field. This is something that is just another medical diagnosis that you have, on, you know, on your plate, and we can deal with it. Um, mm. And the same thing I tell my infertility couples. You did not cause this. This is like, <laughs> you know, this is just what um, nature has dealt to us, and we can figure it out. And, you know, I, I always encourage them to bring their wives to their appointment because I think, you know, treating in things like um, low testosterone or an infertility, those mm-hmm. are both things that truly affect the couple. Because when a man mm-hmm. has low testosterone, their symptoms like low libido, low energy, um, you know, just generally not feeling great, or sometimes depressive symptoms that pop up and actually affect the couple because the mm-hmm. woman starts to feel what's going on. Is he not interested in me? Am I not attractive to him? You know, and they don't know the internal struggles that he's having because right. of the low testosterone. And so I, I always encourage them to, you know, bring their wives so that we can communicate together and they can have a better understanding of the changes that are occurring in him as a result of the low testosterone. 
And then a partner or whoever understanding what's going on can have probably more empathy towards it and just more understanding as a whole and totally improves their relationship. I mean, they walk out of there like a completely different unit than when they walked in. And I think it's so important to be able to have people understand each other and just make them feel like, look, this is not your fault. This is another diagnosis that we're going to deal with just like anything else in life. Um, You know, there's there's studies that have shown that the stress of infertility on its own is just as great as the risk as the stress that you can get from a diagnosis of cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, Because with cancer, everybody kind of avoids you because they don't really know what to say to you. But with infertility, everybody's in your face. You know, family is like, are you doing it the There's right the way? Yeah. <laughs> you baby? When are you doing it? When are you, why are you not, why aren't you pregnant yet? Are you guys trying? Are you not trying? And, and it's very yeah. stressful. You start finding yourself avoiding gatherings, you start avoiding family because you don't want to have to answer those questions. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and depending on the culture, I've seen cultures where, you know, the woman tells me that she's getting hounded because they think it's her fault. <laughs> Um, and they don't know that maybe there's a male fertility factor here and the guy doesn't want to tell them. And so it causes, you know, stress for them as a unit too. And, you know, I kind of like to bring them back to the basics and say, look, you fell in love with each other, number one. And I think we need to take care of you right now. Um, I send my patients frequently to therapy, um, whether for, Mm -hmm. Uh, low T or, or for, um, you know, infertility. I, mm-hmm. um, I'm a big advocate for couples counseling during a fertility um, treatment because I think it's so helpful in helping them talk about their feelings in a safe space. I mean, I can only do so much, but I'm not a licensed therapist. So right. I, I want to make sure that they have a safe space where they can actually um, talk and connect and have an understanding of what they're going through and accept it and digest it. Um, and then heal and move on from it, you know? So, um, those are some of the things that I do, um, for my patients and I've, and I, I think most of them appreciate it and I think they understand, um, the reason behind it. So, um, that I'm very glad that I can, I can do that for them. I like your approach and I like that you introduce the concept of therapy and just really destigmatize the whole conversation. I think that's important when, especially when you're broaching topics that are often not talked about or kind of taboo or just misunderstood. So I, I think that sounds like such a really compassionate form of um, treatment and also just of being in relationship with your patients. So I liked hearing that. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what factors can contribute to low testosterone and even infertility, especially male infertility is what I'm interested in. Yeah. So when I see a a male infertility patient, the key really is to try to figure out what potentially is causing this. Um, Is it something that is fixable? And if it is, what is the, what is the answer of fixing it? Is it medicine? Is it surgery? Is it something that's not fixable? Um, mm-hmm. And is, the, is unfortunately the answer, you know, donor sperm or adoption? Mm-hmm. Or is it something that is not fixable and also has another, like a, a bad genetic cause that we, I need to make sure I get them 
you know, a specialist for. So those are, those are all things that I'm thinking about when I see a male fertility patient. So the things mm. that contribute to male infertility are very vast. Um, they're, they could be, um, the way I like to kind of group them is things that are obstructing. So let's say things that are blocking either their tubes or something else along the reproductive tract that is blocking sperm from making it outside their body or semen mm. as a whole semen as a whole Um, because semen is very different from sperm Um, a lot of men group that into the same thing but semen is actually a collection of fluids and sperm and um, nutrition and everything that comes together that you ejaculate out and about 70% of your semen comes from a structure called your seminal vesicle and it's just fluid and nutrients for the sperm another 20% or so comes from your prostate and then only about 10% of your semen is actually sperm from the testicle. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so when we do vasectomies on patients, they will still be able to have normal ejaculate volumes because we're only taking out about 10% of their ejaculate volume. So it doesn't really change. Right. But I digress. <laughs> so, so if there's something obstructing um, the semen from coming out um, or the sperm from coming out, then we, I want to figure out, um, where, if, if possible, where along that channel that's happening. And there's mm-hmm. ways you can do that. Um, just by physical exam, sometimes um, getting some blood tests will be able to will tell me what's, what's going on. Um, and then there's other things that are like non-obstructive. So they're mean, meaning it's not something that's blocking them from being able to get sperm or semen out. It's just something intrinsic to either the testicle or maybe production of the hormones from the brain that's causing the infertility. Mm. Um, in obstructive settings, so the most common example of an obstructive setting would be like somebody that has a vasectomy. So that's an obstructive cause. They've had a vasectomy in the past and now they want, they're seeing me for a possible vasectomy reversal, um, which is something I do with a surgical microscope. Um, and you can successfully reverse vasectomies in up to 95, 98% of patients um, in, in well-trained hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and then things like there, there are other conditions like absence of the vas deferens. The vas deferens are the tubes that carry sperm from the testicle outside um, the body. Mm-hmm. So when those, in some congenital issues, those tubes are not present in some men. So those men will never be able to transport sperm from their testicle outside. Now, they're still making sperm in their testicle. It's just not right. able to get out. <laughs> so it's basically like a congenital vasectomy in a way. Wow. Yeah. So that's, um, those are examples of, obstruct- of, of obstructive um, causes for infertility. And mm-hmm. then there's like other people that have some either genetic causes causing it um, Kleinfelter's uh, disease um, syndrome is one of the ones, which is basically you have an extra X chromosome. And when you have that, it can cause um, all sorts of disruption in your ability to make, uh, in your ability to conceive, your ability to make testosterone, um, and certainly can cause other medical problems that whenever I see patients like that, I always caution them. Because um, even though they're men, they have an increased risk of breast cancer and some other medical issues that they need to be monitored for. And then right. um, a lot, the other really common one that I see are patients that are post-chemotherapy. So if patients have um, cancer 
for whatever reason, um, whether in, you know, teenagers or in adult men, um, mm-hmm. the recommendation typically is that you um, uh, freeze some sperm before you have the chemo. Because once you have the chemo, um, depending on the type of chemotherapy you have, it can either limit your ability to make sperm after. So you're making sperm, but you're making them in small quantities, or it can actually completely wipe out your ability to make sperm. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I always, you know, I, I, I try to recommend that people do sperm um, cryopreservation. You can freeze sperm before um, um, doing the chemo. And once you freeze sperm, it'll outlive you. You know, you freeze wow. it there indefinitely and, you know, you just leave it in there until you're ready to conceive. It's highly recommended. And there's data out there showing that frozen sperm is just as good as um, fresh sperm when it, comes to, hmm. when it comes to pregnancy rates and live birth rates. There's no difference statistically um, in, this, in frozen sperm versus fresh sperm. Now, so, so there's no reason not to do it um, before chemotherapy. Um, mm-hmm. But once you get the chemotherapy, it, it can't, depending on what, how it affects your body, you can really make it hard to conceive after. The other thing is, after chemo, even if you're in that category of people that have reduced sperm production, but you still have some, it's still recommended that you don't try to conceive for at least 18 months after the chemo because there's some DNA damage that can occur mm-hmm. to your sperm um, that can potentially affect your child if, right. you, if you do conceive um, during that time. Um, and, mm. and while the data is, is a little bit, um, unclear, we think that it can take about a year to 18 months to clear that DNA damage out of you. Mm. So, um, that's typically the recommendation that I give my patients when it comes to that particular category. So, I mean, the, the things that cause infertility are so vast, um, that, yeah. Uh, it, it takes, there's a little bit of a workup that I typically do. I get labs, I get a semen analysis. Um, and then, and then I go from there. I, you know, I jokingly tell my friend that, you know, my life is basically me telling men to ejaculate in a cup so I can look at it under the microscope. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically my life every day. <laughs> but it sounds like you helped so many people from doing that. So thank, uh, thank God. I'm glad it's effective. <laughs> So if, if there are so many vast reasons and factors and, you know, things that are contributing towards male infertility, why are there so few male fertility specialists? Uh, That's a very good question. (laughs) You know, I think there's about uh, anywhere between 300 and 350 maybe um, male fertility specialists in the whole country. Um, In Dallas alone, I think our population of the DFW Metroplex as a whole, like Dallas-Fort Worth, is probably about a little over 6 million. And I think there's maybe four of us that are fellowship trained. Wow. uh, Catering. (laughs) Uh, I think I'm the only woman. (laughs) Certainly the only black person (laughs) that does it in the DFW Metroplex. So it's a little bit bit interesting. I I think there's a few factors that I think. Um, One Mm -hmm. is we don't have as many fellowship programs as other, um, other subspecialties in urology do. Um, for example, um, you know, when I looked last at the, at the American Urologic Association website, I think there were maybe 10 fellowships that are listed in the so-called match system. 
There are okay. a few fellowships that are outside the map that I definitely know of. So maybe in total, there's probably anywhere between 12 to 15 fellowships. Mm-hmm. And most of them take only one fellow a year. Wow. <laughs> there's one that I think takes two, but majority of them take one fellow or two fellows a year. So at any given year, there may be like 15 to 20 fellows being produced. Um, And that's actually a drastic increase in the last few years. For some reason, there's been more interest in infertility. Um, So in the last few years, there's probably been more. I mean, prior to that, they were probably only having like maybe eight fellows a year or something like that. I think it's also a relatively quote-unquote, newer field um, to get recognized in the urology world. Um, and, and so it's just been, it, it's, it's just, you know, we don't have that many people trained in it just because it's not that many training spots. And it's also, you know, finally starting to get its due. I mean, I think mm-hmm. most urology, the other factor is because there's not many of us trained. There's not a lot of residencies that have male fertility specialists. So residents mm. are not exposed to it. And if they're not exposed to it, they don't know that they like it enough to, to do a fellowship in it. You know, I, mm. I, I always like to say that I think I'm just an oddball in that I can always pinpoint a moment in life that made me decide to choose something. Because mm. for me, even though I didn't have a male fertility person, this one patient that I saw changed it all for me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I thought maybe I would do pediatric urology. Um, I considered reconstructive urology. Um, and then I met this patient. And then it changed the whole course of my life. And I'm so mm-hmm. grateful. So um, I think the, the issue with male fertility specialists in this country, I think, is, is potentially, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg factor, right? Is it, be, mm-hmm. do we have less trained people because more residents are not going in it? But then we also have less residents going into it because there's not exposure to it in their residency program. And so it right. kind of becomes a vicious cycle like that. So the hope is that as we increase, you know, um, people that are graduating, hopefully they'll go to more academic practices and then mm-hmm. they'll expose more residents to it, and then hopefully more people will get interest in it. Is is my is my plan for this great field of ours? <laughs> I like that. And so, a fellowship is required for a doctor to specialize in male infertility. No, it's not required, but it's okay. certainly recommended. I mean, gotcha. you, I mean, being fellowship trained means you dedicated, you know, a full year or two. Some fellowships are one or two of them are two years. Um, And all you did was mostly infertility, male, men's health, or Mm -hmm. sexual dysfunction. Um, And to me, that creates for you a lot of experience that you can actually bring to the table once you are in your practice. Um, Mm -hmm. There's some people that are fortunate enough to maybe have exposure to it in their residency. And so when they graduate, they may choose to do some male infertility procedures or manage some male infertility patients, even though they didn't do a fellowship in it. Because, you know, you can be a general urologist and and do some male infertility. That's perfectly fine. It's just, you know, it's just doing the fellowship certainly gives you, uh, to me, a stamp of, 
you know, I'm fellowship trained in this. And so um, I like to think my outcomes are better (laughs) in managing patients. So, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That sounds like, I mean, everyone knows that doctors go to school for a very long time, but (laughs) to add on a fellowship, but I can see how that would add to your effectiveness because like you said, you would be dedicating a year, maybe two to this specific subset of issues that are being presented and then you can see how to treat those. So that makes a lot of sense. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You get the experience, you see all sorts of, uh, you know, different, different causes in a clinic. I mean, like you see all sorts of genetic causes, all sorts of, you know, so I think your depth and breadth of your experience widens so much more that, you know, when you're in practice uh, on your own, um, there's, I mean, there's always going to be surprises in medicine, but you, you know, Mm -hmm. you're, I think you're better equipped for it. Definitely. So as we start to come full circle, where can people stay in touch with you and your work? Oh, um, so I am actually on Instagram. Um, I am, my name on Instagram is I am Dr. B. Um, it's actually, I am, I A M D R dot B E E. Um, that's a page I recently, um, started to, you know, just educate people, um, some on um, male infertility. I have clinics all over the DFW Metroplex. Um, if people ever want to see me, I'm in Fort Worth at the Moncrief Center, um, in Fort Worth. I have two clinics in Dallas, um, one okay. at the outpatient um, center, um, one uh, where we call West Campus, um, and then another clinic in Frisco. So wow. I'm all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you can always, always find me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, if someone certainly sends me a question or um, something like that on Instagram, I'm, I'm happy to, um, answer it with, to, within certain, um, constraints, obviously. Um, but, uh, if you just Google, um, or search for UT Southwestern in my name, there's so many different clinics that'll pop up and you can also schedule your appointment online. Um, you can do self-scheduling online to be able to see me. Um, so they make it very easy for sure. So is there a specific website that you'd like people to check out? Yes. So if you go to the UT Southwestern um, slash urology website, um, Mm -hmm. it'll list all the physicians. And if you click my name, Tolopi Bakari, that's um, Mm T-O-L-U-L-O-P-E, Bakari, B-A-K-A-R-E, it'll take you to my scheduling um, links and you can just schedule to see me there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Tolu, for being a guest on the podcast. I learned so much from you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. And um, yeah, I'm very happy to do this. Yay. When it comes to fertility, there are often a lot of factors at play. And researchers are publishing more and more studies about the effects that certain chemicals can have on health after consistent exposures. BPA, phthalates, parabens. Ever heard of them? Well, they are known endocrine disruptors that have long been included in many conventional personal care products, like the ones we use on our skin every single day. And I've been learning a lot about what these chemicals can do, and it turns out that 
endocrine disruptors are compounds that interfere with or even disrupt how hormones are expressed. Since our bodies are highly sensitive to changes in hormonal balance, it's really important to be mindful of how what we use on our bodies can affect our hormones like estrogen and testosterone, which is why it's really helpful to know that BPA, phthalates, and parabens are all on beauty counters never list, which means you'll never find those ingredients in any beauty counter products from men's grooming, skincare, makeup, and baby items. And even if you're not interested in conceiving Preserving one's fertility goes hand-in-hand with preserving one's well-being. So if you're ready to toss those endocrine disruptors out with the bathwater, shop youngbeautycounter.com or just tap the link in the show notes. And that's it for this episode of Young Honest Mother, the podcast, which means it's time for you to join the conversation. Share your thoughts on social media and tag me at Young Honest Mother. And then pass this episode along to friends and family who need to know that they're not alone on this journey either. Until next time, I'm your host, Maurice Young.